0: know intense and I just thought to myself wow you know I tried so hard to do everything right I tried to plan for everything I tried to you know be a good student be a good daughter be a good sister be a good friend and it wasn't enough and at the time that's how I felt like it kind of feels like something like I did went Mm. wrong when really you know it's not anything I could have controlled.
1: Uh. Babysit, bitches, take it back to the bases. Multi-billion cash, the feelings amazing. Got a portion inside my stable, don't horsing me, baby. Twenty plus in my field, I'm like cope with the latest It's like I'm torn the sprinter, doing these road trips, three days. Close for more M's, I stay on it. When you step on the premise, just know I own this. Collaborate inside of my district, is for the owners. The, punish, the true one-on-one. How I keep the business, you just might learn you something. What's going on, everybody? I'm back with another episode of the Collab District Podcast. I got another young lady entrepreneur in the building, Ms. Kavita Ra. She's the owner of Ethos, the new trending mobile drinking app that we'll speak about, but she also has an incredible journey that we'll share as well. Welcome to the show, Kavita.
0: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: So like I said, I do these um, episodes in hopes to inspire people and also share other entrepreneurs um, journey and stories in the community in hopes to inspire someone else. Um, So tell our audience a little bit about your background, where you're from, you know, your heritage and where you grew up and kind of like how that shaped who you are today as a young entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'm Born and raised in Camarillo, California, my parents both immigrated here from India. Um, my mom immigrated here when she was three years old, and she moved to Stockton, California. Eventually, made her way to Ventura County. My dad was born in India. Uh, actually, lived in Kenya for majority of his childhood. Then went to England, and then came here. Um, and they both, you know, became pharmacists and um, have pharmacies all over Ventura County, and so, um, you know, seeing them start businesses obviously inspired my brother and I to, one, understand what hard work looks like, Mm -hmm. and two, what it's like to actually create an entity, create a life for yourself, and so I think I've always been surrounded by hard work, Mm -hmm. and that has played such a huge role, (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> has sorry. And that has played such a huge role um, in, you know, where I feel like I'm at right now in my life.
1: That's awesome. I've also had, you know, family members in business. And when you have people close to you, especially loved ones, and you can watch them and it becomes obtainable to you, right? Like, I feel like there's so many times where... Um, Owning a business seems so far-fetched for people, but, you know, when you have entrepreneurship inside your household or close around you, it becomes attainable. Did that, you you talked about how that sparked you, so do you feel that that's what contributed to you, you know, just having that entrepreneur spirit? Did you help out with any of the pharmacies? Uh, You know, did they they put you in part of the business so you can kind of learn responsibility, maybe not necessarily the pharmaceutical world, but just responsibility at a young age?
0: Yeah, I I grew up in like the back room of the pharmacies, okay. you know, where you know they didn't couldn't get a babysitter so it's like okay, just stay in the back and you learn, you you learn from the environment, you help out. I I wouldn't say I grew up knowing I wanted to start a business. I think mm-hmm. I had an entrepreneurial spirit, and I think that came from being very observant as a kid and understanding people's needs mm. and you know, when you understand people's needs, you pretty much kind of already here in the problem-solving space, right? And so um, I think that's really what just was such a spark for me, was really enjoying making a difference in other people's lives, whether it was in school, figuring out, okay, this is maybe what a teacher's need is. Mm -hmm. Like, let me see how I can, like – like, let me see what I can do, and then how how can I problem-solve to make the whole experience for the classroom better to, you know – thinking about that at a community scale and now what we're doing kind of integrating technology with ethos and Mm. how you can leverage that to um, help a community help a certain patient population in need and so I think that's really what was instilled in me Mm -hmm. Um, and again it was you know be whether it was being in the pharmacy uh, uh, like during summer (laughs) um, or seeing my parents come home you go to work at 8 a.m., come home at 7 p.m., yeah. and you just see what it takes to, you know, have a business yeah. um, and to run a business. Um, you know, they afforded, my brother and I, a really comfortable living where, you know, we were able to then see how can we maximize our opportunity, the things that we were given to add on to what our parents have already built for us um, and really laid the foundation for the ways in which we could accelerate.
1: And your mom and dad are they a team do they work together? And is that where you and your brother get that from? Um, yeah. it, you know, watching your parents, you know, work as a team because I'm sure it wasn't always you know, clouds and rainbows, right? <laughs> I'm sure there are some things that happen oh, and, yeah. and transferred at home and vice versa. And and I see, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak to you and your brother. Um, you guys work, it seems like you guys feed off each other, work well at each other. Did you get that from watching your parents as well?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I, it's honestly the basis of, like, the way I grew up was, you know, they, were, they came home, they worked together, and then we were a family unit. And so it totally, I think, Influenced the way I I I saw, I guess. Oh, to back up, I never thought that I would be working with my brother. If I'm (laughs) going to be, like, really honest, growing up,
1: right? Growing (laughs) up,
0: we were polar opposites. Where if you knew us, people would kind of see us as foils, you know. (laughs) But in not not in a bad way. way. We was just two different different, people, and you know, of course, growing up, we're only three years apart, so we would butt heads. Who's older?
1: He's older. He's older.
0: Okay. I like that you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's interesting because, you know, the weaknesses that I have and the weaknesses maybe that he has, we have strengths that Mm complement each other's weaknesses. And so in a business setting, we really work well together because I think you need to have two different dynamic roles, Mm -hmm. you know. I feel like I'm definitely more of the cautious, meticulous, maybe slightly perfectionist one. And he's like, we just have to keep on building, put it out there, building, put it out there, iterate. He's a risk taker. And so Mm -hmm. he's taught me so much about how to really not care about what other people think and just go for it. Just go for it, yeah. Um, And I think the earlier you can learn that, just the easier opportunities. Of course it's going to be a really hard road, yeah. but the easier it is to feel like you can obtain those opportunities because it becomes less and less hard to take that, um, risk or that mindset shift to feel like you can take that risk. And so, although I wouldn't, if you asked me this question, even like two years ago, I I would be like, what we're working together. Yeah. But you know, I think that it's only made us stronger. And I think, Um, you know, we've definitely seen the pros and cons of being a family and working together. It it can be really stressful. But also I think we've learned the good things and the bad things that maybe our um, mom and dad taught us and saying, okay, hey, this is how we want to approach it. And, Mm. you know, we're siblings first. We have a relationship first that we want to prioritize that goes beyond business, goes beyond working together. Mm -hmm. And I think when you prioritize that, then you have that basic level of respect also, in a business, you're able to keep be really real with each other yeah. too, where you don't have to tiptoe.
1: Yeah, and I so. think also when you're looking at partners, like you don't have to really grow that trust factor, right? You yeah. guys have that through growing up. You guys trust each other, yeah. so you know if someone has to make a call or a final decision, you you know that trust factor is there. You know because um, everyone's not a good partner. You know yeah. people can be great entrepreneurs, but n- you know. It takes a different um, type entrepreneur to also be a partner and, and play a role. So I commend yeah. you both for that. Um, you you talked about growing up in Camarillo, attending Newberry High Park High School, and then on to college at University of Southern California. Um, how important was education to to you? And you know, and how has that played a role? into your um, career today? Were you an overachiever in high school and like in the ASB uh, student class president? Yeah. Or were you more of a social um, type in in school?
0: Yeah. Um, So yeah, I graduated from Newberry Park High School and I definitely was the overachiever, like classic overachiever. I think education from a young age was instilled in me that, you know, it's very important to work hard, do well in school um, because an education can unlock so many opportunities the same way, you know, it did for my mom and dad. And so that I always knew was super important to me. But as I kind of mentioned, seeing my parents always work, I think hard work translated into me constantly being this perfectionist and overachiever where, you know, I was involved in like seven different clubs. <laughs> okay. I had, you know, wanted to get the highest GPA. I always knew USC was the school I wanted to go to. Okay. And that was my goal. And when I got in, it was like, wow, of course there were so many variables that allowed me to get an education at USC, yeah. but it really showed me, Hey, if I, I have this drive, if I work hard, I can always keep moving this goalpost. And I think it really showed me, like I was a very ambitious person Mm. and I wasn't afraid of that. But I think when you're constantly moving the goalpost, you also have to be really intentional about what drives you. And I think when I was 18 years old, I didn't know what was driving me. I didn't know a lot. I just knew that I, I like being ambitious. And so I think when I got to college, it was just this, it it struck me that, you know, there's so many opportunities, there's so many people. I also felt this immense pressure that I I put on myself of, I have this amazing opportunity for an educational experience that, you know, my parents dreamt of, Mm -hmm. I don't want to mess this up. Mm. And so I think a lot of, you know, and I think this comes from a lot of daughter of immigrants children of immigrants where it feels like you want to um you know make your parents proud and you maybe feel even a little guilty yeah, like that, of survivors having
1: survivors remorse more yeah of yeah. having
0: these opportunities that they didn't have and wanting to just make like make the most of it and I think I definitely saw within the first few months that that was really burdening me where I wasn't even <laughs> experiencing, you know, I had this five-year plan
1: Okay. where I,
0: I made this five-year plan um, going into USC called My Guide to USC, color-coded all the different Whole things PowerPoint. I needed to Yep. All the different <laughs> things I wanted to do, the clubs, the classes. I was so interested in different things that I think it maybe overwhelmed me where I was like, I need to, like, figure out how to put it in a lane mm-hmm. because – I don't think I, it, I don't think it, I really knew how to deal with having different interests because I was so focused on the outcome, and I didn't know how I was going to mm. get an achievement. Yeah. And so that was my perspective at 18 years old, which obviously has changed now. But yeah. it's it's been a long road to actually kind of fix that mindset and unlearn a lot of things.
1: Yeah. Why um, you talked about you kn- you knew at an early age USC like why USC. I had the opportunity to take some business courses at USC and it, it was one mm-hmm. of the it helped my career, you know, it wasn't necessarily college but had the opportunity to take um you know like this young emerging leaders courses that were yeah. at USC and like you it helped me you know um like being on mm-hmm. campus just did something to you mm-hmm. and then um just the curriculum that I got and what I was able to learn um was it so impactful for my business to where It taught me how to scale from a small construction company into, you know, the next level of of like scaling up and actually planning for that. And I didn't really necessarily have the education to do that. You know, I knew I had the ambition like you, but I actually didn't have the education until then to like write it in a plan and, you know, and, and it. Not just goal setting, but how, and meticulously yeah. how going to reach those goals. So, like, how, you know, what about USC at an yeah. early age made you want to go there? You know, yeah. that's in the middle of the hood.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I <mean>. So, <laughs> I actually have a really funny story of how I got introduced to USC. I, mean, I always knew it was school, right? You grew up in Ventura County. You know the schools in Southern California. Um, it was when my brother was applying to colleges. He didn't want to, like, visit the school and my parents were like, okay, well, we already signed up for a tour. You're going to go and pretend to be him because <laughs> okay. we we already signed up for the tour, you know. So it's paid for. So we got to do this. And so I was the person, and at this time I was like a freshman in high school. So I pretended to be my brother. I don't know why, that <laughs> I felt like the need to – I think my parents were honestly just messing with me. Um, but I visited the school, and I just was in awe of – like, the energy on campus. Yeah, it's different. It's a beautiful campus. Yeah. But every respective school, whether it's journalism, engineering, the film school, the business school, was such a standalone, like, it, it was such a, like, accomplished school mm-hmm. um, and a well-known school that I loved the fact that they were, they were just leaders in every single industry because mm. as a young person, I wanted to see, like, I want to try a little bit of everything. Like, I want to take a journalism class. I want to take a business class. And what I loved is that it was super interdisciplinary where I got to work with students from different majors Mm -hmm. and just work on projects that we were passionate about, whether it was making like a documentary wow. my sophomore year or actually working on a different health tech startup for um, a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Like that was one of the classes that I took. And so there was just so many opportunities and so many students who were just genuinely so passionate about what they were studying with. I knew being in an environment like that, if I, even if I didn't know at that moment what I wanted to do, I knew I would be able to experience yeah, yeah. so much. And so that's really what drew me um, to the school, and it just everyone was so kind, so supportive. they really market <laughs> the Trojan family well, yeah, but I can say now, as an alum, like it really is true, and so much of the early calls we had with ethos were with USC alumni or with people connections that I got through USC, mm-hmm. you know USC is a school known for its network, and that really stays true.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You talked about joining all t- different clubs and you kind of dove in head first and you wanted to experience a little bit of it all. But once you have tamed that down, what clubs did you join and you know, what kind of relationships came from college, right? Cuz we have our mm-hmm. friends from childhood that we grew up with, but then I hear about these stories. I didn't actually attend college, but I have, you know, kids in college and you know, I've talked to other entrepreneurs and there's these bonds that are made in college that, you know, that last forever, as well as networks that are um, provided that go well beyond, you know, your 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 student days. You know, when you turn to a professional, you have a Rolodex of professionals that you can reach into. Like mm-hmm. you said, you were speaking to a lot of alum on your on some of the early stages of your of your business. So can you talk about some of those clubs that you joined in those networks and relationships that you have today?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest like most formative experience that I had at uh, USC was joining their student government. Um, I was really involved with USG and which is universe, like the student government at USC. And it just exposed me again to going back to what I was talking about, about how I just felt super connected to problem solving, Mm -hmm. I was able to have my hands in so many different projects that student government alongside the administration was working on Mm -hmm. to solve for the student body. And so I got to be, instead of just, you know, maybe talking with my peers about, okay, what could this look like? How could we make this experience better for students? I actually got to be in the decision-making room Mm. with administrators and speak for students. And so one of the biggest projects that I worked on was Title IX reform because there were a lot of fraternities who came out with, you know, a, a lot of violations for sexual assault and gender-based violence. Yeah. And a lot of students on campus didn't feel safe. And there were actually huge protests for the course over the course of two weeks. And this is wow. right when I got appointed <laughs> into <laughs> student government. So I was like, okay.
1: First challenge. You
0: know, and yeah. so for me, it's, it's always really interesting when there's friction between any two groups, what does the mediator do? And you have to be really strategic, um, and also very empathetic to both sides to actually push something forward. And I think I just enjoyed being in those spaces where I could make a difference. Um, and you know, I, I worked on a lot of different mental health policies for students. Um, and you know, as you can imagine with, A lot of what was going on at that time, as well as COVID, Hmm. um, there was a lack of resources for students who needed help. And ultimately, my experience uh, in student government is what informed me to want to work on Ethos. Okay. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, I saw that not only the work that I did in Title IX and how alcohol is a contributing factor to gender-based violence to all these other issues that we see, but I also saw the mental health crises so many students were going through, um, and using substances, you know, as a, as a form to cope. And it's just normalized. Like I did it, my friends did it, it was reinforced. And, you know, for so many reasons I realized, you know, this has to kind of change.
1: Yeah. That, that's amazing work um, you hear about that you know it's one of my you know my fears you know sexual based you know crimes on campus you hear it all the time you know especially having kids in college but um, that's amazing did you guys m- make any big headway and change at the university or just f- at the least bit started the conversation on a broad range correct
0: yeah we started the conversation we were able to do a few different cool initiatives or important initiatives to help students. So one of them being creating an intake unit within the reporting office. So students, you know, God forbid they have to go and report an incident. They have to do it manually on a website. And so we really advocated to have a care advocate. So somebody's actually listening to you on Mm -hmm. the phone to guide you through the next steps and also take your case yeah. to the next, you know, level it needs to get to. And I think, again, it just goes through, there are so many ways you can have more empathetic touch points and bureaucratic systems. And it's something we think about too when we're <laughs> building a company that deals with a really difficult topic. Yes. Um, but there are ways that you can make it easier for that person who is seeking care um, to just, you know, like how can you make it easy for them? And so that was one of the projects that I spearheaded that I was really proud of, um, as well as um, just increasing the amount of counseling services for students mm-hmm. um, and making sure that students from all different backgrounds had access to like culturally competent counselors mm-hmm. instead of like just a universal, like generic college counselor. We really tried to make sure how can we put people who understand a variety of different student experiences on campus and people who students would feel comfortable coming to um and so it all goes back to how can we really meet students where they're at well that's amazing um you've
1: watched your parents also you know be, being immigrants they've had to overcome a lot of adversity um to provide a life and start a business in, here in america alone um, and you've had to overcome your own adversity in your young journey you were diagnosed with cancer um, can you talk about, you know, the type of cancer that you had and, you know, how that's also now played into who you are? Because I when I talked to you as soon as I met you, there's like a like great sense of gratitude, you know. I feel that type of energy yeah. coming from you and I'm sure, you know, we all are we all are who we are today from all of our life experiences yeah. from before. So do you mind uh sharing yeah.
0: about that? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with stage 2B Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer. I was diagnosed at the end of my first semester of freshman year at USC. Mm. Um, And the process of getting diagnosed, uh, I, you know, it it was initially just I kind of felt like this lump in my throat. Every time I would take vitamins, I was like, I don't know what this is. Mm. You know, it's hard for me to, like, swallow these vitamins. Like, you know seems abnormal and you know the initial response that I got from a lot of provide like my primary care f- doctor um my pediatrician at the time because I was barely 18 yeah. and my parents was like you know don't worry it's just stress like you're going through midterms like it, it's gonna okay. like pass over and I don't to this day I don't know what it was call it intuition divine intervention I was like, no, I need to get this checked out. And, you know, this is something that I probably wouldn't have done, like, because I just, again, you know, you grow up and you're like, okay, I saw my parents just, like, push through mm. adversity. Okay, like, you know, it's fine. Like, keep keep working, you know, it's it's nothing.
1: Yeah, this too shall pass, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: And so I was like, okay, maybe it, whatever. But for some reason, I decided to go. I booked an appointment with the student health clinic and she basically told me hey you need to get a ct scan stat i think there's something else going on and it was at that point where you know my friends and family and my pediatrician at the time was like okay yeah like let's let's go th- let's run some tests to see what this is but you know their perspective still at the time was, I don't know why this person's scaring you. I'm sure it's nothing. Yeah, And so it was a lot of learning how to actually advocate for myself to figure out what was going on with my body. Own, you had
1: to be your own voice, right?
0: It's Yeah, and I think what's really scary is like, I was scared to figure that out. (laughs) I didn't want to know, but nobody else was going to do that for me. Wow. And so I had to, you know, say, hey, like, I want to get this test done. I had to learn how to ask the right questions in a doctor's room. And, you know, my parents being in the healthcare space, they had a lot of knowledge on, you know, understanding, you know, certain type of tests I need, or maybe like, like really just helping me figure it out. But so many people... Don't have that. So many people wouldn't even think to call their pediatrician if they had force, an issue, yeah, force, right?
1: Yeah, throat issue. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and there, and also, like, I just know in like the black community, like, it's a stigma to even go to the doctor, mm-hmm. you know. So, and that's a that's a lot of minority communities yeah. because we're fearful of the unknown, and mm-hmm. um, healthcare is a is a is a big issue for uh, yeah. another topic for another day, but you know, so what What other steps did you have to go were you going through to finally find out to get the diagnosis and what was the the process of you know recovering from that like not only the physical process but like that had to be very tough mentally right and there had to be some draining times where you just probably felt like you just wanted to give up you yeah. know um yeah. or maybe you didn't maybe you always stayed positive because I just <laughs> had this conversation with with a friend that that has a family member that's really sick and i you know We can get the best medical attention. Like, um, medicine has um, advanced so much over the last few decades. You know, me being on the board at the hospital, I see the medicine, the technology that we have, the robots, and things like that. But I think there's also something to say about a person's like inner resilience and like willpower. And I believe like willpower is a muscle, you know, and it sounded like you had already been training that muscle for the unknown. Um, So, can you just Talk about the, also the resilience that you kind of had to have m- mentally, you know, and mental health because, again, it sounds like at a time where it was right around COVID, so there's just a lot going yeah, on. Yeah,
0: it was actually right around COVID. And I think, you know, I remember getting diagnosed. It took about a month for me to finally get diagnosed. Mm-hmm. I was sitting at the children's hospital. So think about, like, having your first taste of independence at 18 years old going to college to then holding your mom's hand at a children's hospital, mm. not knowing the next steps. Yeah, well. It was, you know, intense. And I just thought to myself, wow, you know, I tried so hard to do everything right. I tried to plan for everything. I tried to, you know, be a good student, be a good daughter, be a good sister, be a good friend. And it wasn't enough. And at the time, that's how I felt. Like, it kind of feels like as a patient or as as you know, for me, it felt like something like I did
1: went Mm. wrong
0: when really, you know, it's not anything I could have controlled. Correct. And I think I had to really get in touch with myself. And I think prior to that, I was constantly just doing things to have an external outcome, some sort of validation. And this really stripped all of that away. I there was mm, nothing you know yeah. I I could do. It
1: didn't matter. Anymore, it didn't right? matter. Those external things, achievements, all seem so minuscule. It, at this nothing
0: point. matters when you're sick. Like <laughs> nothing else is is of as as importance, right? We we stress so much about. Oh my gosh, I didn't study enough. Oh my gosh, what does this person think of me? Oh my gosh, I, I don't know what I I want to do with my life.
1: Yeah, all, <laughs> all those things. Even all
0: those the, things, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh my gosh. I don't know what the next six months are going to entail. I don't know how my body is going to react to this. And I think having to go through the physical pain every other – so my my chemotherapy uh, was on a regimen of – I had to be at the infusion center about every two weeks. And so there would be about, like, it would take me, let's say, like three to four days to fully recover – Like, to at least, you know, feel like I can do a few things for the remainder of the time until I had to go back and for my next dose. Okay. Um, And I just remembered, like, having to be very in touch with my body because when you are in so much physical pain and also mental, like, stress, you have to be in touch with your body. And that's what really forced me to do that. I mean, I think that I was... I had this huge sense of FOMO too. I was like, I'm supposed to be an 18-year-old carefree girl. You know, I worked so hard and I just wanted like that taste of freedom.
1: You had your five-year plan? I <laughs> had my
0: five-year plan. This was not in, <laughs> in the, the plan. I remember actually um, sitting in the hospital bedroom and this was like the night I got diagnosed. I couldn't sleep obviously. And, I, you know, I had to get surgery in the morning um, to get my port inserted, which is how they, you know, that that's how they plug in your medication. Mm. Um, and I just remember, like, on, I was on my laptop, and I was just crying. I was, like, trying to fix the plan. I was like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to account You're for this? You trying to fix
1: the plan the same day that you yeah. found out that you got diagnosed?
0: Yes. Wow. And it was just that is how I think how deeply ingrained wanting to, have control over life was for me mm. and I don't know where because I think even to a certain extent my parents were a little shocked too you know and so I think it really comes from almost not wanting to obviously be in the that present moment because it's so hard to comprehend yeah. so you're like how can I plan for something so, else yeah
1: especially at 18 years old I mean come on I
0: yeah think. I didn't I was so naive to life at that that point point. really and I think something that really put things into perspective in addition to having to do things like you know like start to read more start to consume like whether it was podcasts or books or you know like poems literature things that could help me heal Mm -hmm. I think I also kind of you know looked at like my, like, family lineage of resilience. So mm. my, on my dad's side, my grandmother, um, his mom died of cancer. He has two sisters that died of cancer. On my mom's side, her mom had cancer and luckily was a survivor. But to think about everything generations before has had to go through to get you and your body here where it is today... And then your body to take you where it needs to go. And for my my case, it was through this journey of chemotherapy and recovery. Like, how could you, I not be fucking grateful? <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> you right? know? Yeah. How yeah. could I not like why am I and I even think about it now, it's like so many things that on my day to, in my day to day that worry me. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah, right. Like,
1: <laughs> like what? Yeah. Why? Like, you know? Yeah.
0: Like It really taught me that, like, life is so precious for me to stay in the present. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to plan even two steps ahead when I cherish what I have right now because I'm so grateful for just the feeling of being able to get up out of my bed and walk. Or, you know, the feeling of being able to grow out my hair and not watch my hair fall out. You know, those yeah. were just intense experiences at 18 years old, where you know you didn't really think about your health like that.
1: No, I mean not at 18. You're not yeah. thinking like that. Yeah. And what about the? Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure you had an undenying support in, in, in community because, you know, when, you know, when like I said, a family member gets sick you have, you have to have your own resilience, but you also have to have a community yeah. of people behind you to, because when you're not strong, they got to be strong for you, right? Yeah. Um, how did your fa- family, friends, other, uh, people, you know, uh, survivors or people, you know, currently battling cancer, did those, th- that, uh, group of community come to your aid and also aid into your recovery?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, the silver lining is I never felt up until that point more loved and lifted up from my friends and family who would constantly just FaceTime me just to keep me preoccupied, you know. I had friends who were in completely different lives at that point where, you know, they were enjoying college but, you know, would still pick up the phone if I needed it. And I will say it was really isolating. And so I also, uh, there was this part of me that was like, I don't know how much, like, they can really relate to what I'm going through.
1: Re- like, really relate. Really relate, you <laughs> yeah. know?
0: And so I think I decided to really try to find community online. And I, you know, I remember, you know, one of the f- few days where I, I had to stay in the hospital, I just tried to find people on social media who had gone through what I had gone through. Because I wanted to almost, like, see what does, what did their evolution look like? What what what's really in store? I had no idea. Yeah. To be honest, when the doctor said I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, I was like, oh, thank God he didn't say cancer. And then I realized it is cancer. Of, yeah. So I, I had no idea. And so um, I just wanted to I, I saw so many young cancer patients, you know, go through therapy, share their story online, and you know, now they're like two, three years out, they've recovered, they've gone back to life. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, really reassuring. Yeah. And I think part of me found a lot of comfort in also sharing my story mm. online. And whenever I had these like, quote unquote, milestones of like, hey, today I had to shave my head. It became a lot less scary, which maybe is kind of ironic because people find it really scary to put things out online.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had, you had to get out of your comfort but zone. But I, right?
0: I was already out of my <laughs> comfort zone. So yeah. I was like, you know what? I, I need the support and maybe there is somebody who is going through the same thing as me mm-hmm. that I can find. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. You know, I, I found so many people who were going through cancer um, and we would check in with each other and be like, hey, like, how did your infusion go? How how are your symptoms? How are you doing? Like. Yeah. What, you know, like, you're talking about plans when this is all over, right? Which is a completely different <laughs> story of, you know, this concept of, oh, this is just, uh, you know, uh, a, sh- a, a, a little obstacle in the road. You know, it's not like that. It, it completely <laughs> alters the way you look at life, the way you live life. Um, but for that time, it was really amazing to, again, create community and create that for myself, um, and to this day, I still get people who you know dm me and say, Hey, like I saw what you I saw what you went through like i'm i'm was just diagnosed a lot of what you just talked about really helped me, wow, and that to me is what touches me the most is because i I was once that person who was, was see- trying yeah, to seek, seek that
1: yeah. That's that's amazing. Um, That's one of the great things about um, social media and and online is that you can find a community. It does make the world a little smaller to where you can connect with someone clearly across the country. And like you said, these are people now that you're communicating with that um, know what you're going through. You guys are talking the same language. You guys are going through the same treatments and things like that. And you go through that, you recover, and you still somehow graduate from USC. Like, explain, <laughs> like, how did you yeah. persevere and, and, and continue to push through that?
0: Yeah, I, I, I honestly think it's taken me, really up until very recently, to comprehend the remainder of my college experience. Mm-hmm. You know, after going through cancer, because it is an interesting experience to recover from cancer. In an environment like college, where so many young people are just so reckless about their health, <laughs> and it put me in an environment where I had to think twice about the situations I was putting in what I was put in, especially when it comes to alcohol um because that was a huge risk factor for me for mm-hmm. relapse and you know there was also just this like almost i, I it almost felt like I was. Uh, Almost, uh, I already outgrew this experience of like being carefree because it. I just couldn't. I couldn't feel carefree anymore after going through that. Um, And I think that you know, on paper, you look at my resume, maybe, or you see things that I've been able to do, and it's like, wow, you know, she was able just to bounce right back. But it wasn't like that. I mean, if it goes, I will say, I think a lot of the tendencies I had before cancer when it comes to just, you know, working through, like, just using work, whether it's through school, whether it's through actual work, whether it's through in keeping myself busy, essentially, to numb myself out Mm. and to not really think about my life consciously. And so that's really what it was. It just felt like everything, like, I'm so tired of everything being uncertain around my health. I'm just going to do what I think I'm expected to do mm. and go from there. Like I'm just going to do that and so I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. And yeah. then come my, you know, junior year when I was on this path to graduate, go to grad school, you know, I was like, you know what? I don't feel happy. Like I don't feel like this is something I even feel called to do. Oh wow. And at this at least at At that time. And it's like, the more you ignore your intuition, the more you start to break this trust with yourself. You really, you know, it's not something to ignore. And so I was just, I had such a hard or difficult relationship with myself where I didn't know anything that I wanted because I spent so much time not listening to my body despite building this relationship during treatment Uh, With myself and, and during COVID with myself, it's just like you get back into an environment and it feels like your bubble is popped, you know? And so I had to do a lot of really hard work to put myself in uncomfortable positions to figure out, like, what is it that I want? And I say uncomfortable positions in the sense that I think I've always been ambitious and always wanted to take initiative in things that I knew I was good at. And when you get to a certain point, it's like if that's not even fulfilling me anymore because I realize I'm so attached to certain outcomes or validation from it. You have to put yourself in a situation to learn and discover and you're not going to succeed all the time. You're not going to succeed most of the time (laughs) when you're learning. And so that was a huge thing for me to figure out. And so that's really where I decided I wanted to, you know, build on kind of the backbone of my entrepreneurial spirit and take this very humble journey of figuring out what type of skills do I need to learn right now? And like, how can I just like work really hard, but work really hard to actually like be a sponge and and absorb information, learn from other people who have been successful in this field and just be very curious and try things without being so attached to the outcome. Yeah. And that was really hard for, like, a recovering perfectionist, for somebody who came from an immigrant family where it was like, okay, like, like, what's – you're kind of expected of, had to have a linear journey. Yeah. Um, and I think that it was hard for my parents, too, <laughs> to see me struggle because obviously they just want –
1: Yeah, your, yeah you never want to see your kids struggle. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And so I think I had to really, you know – Say to myself, if I don't build this muscle to take risk, to allow myself to learn, it's just going to get harder for me to do it. And I'm also not going to put myself in a position where I'm ignoring my intuition because I felt really called to just, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to stay on this linear trajectory that, you know, maybe on paper would have been so much easier than Mm. what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, But I just really felt like at this moment, what really sets me apart from my peers who maybe have more quote-unquote experience in a certain field or more skills in a field? We're all young people who are about to enter the workforce or become young professionals. Like, we're still pretty much at a baseline, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah, you're still entering. Exactly. your journey. And I want to pivot to that part is, like you said, you talked about you're very results based and then, Mm -hmm. you know, you went through your adversities and you've become more present with the actual process. And I'm the same way where, you know, I am, I enjoy the the process to, to get the results that I want. And like, we don't Mm -hmm. always get the results. And like you said, those are times to learn and to grow uh, when when you when you when you have failures, can you talk about the process of creating ethos, what yeah. ethos is, and what inspired you you talk you kind of talked about it being on campus life yeah but what inspired you to create something again again uh, around a topic like alcohol that really benefits a lot of people?
0: Yeah, so ethos is a digital health solution that helps individuals manage alcohol consumption before it reaches the stage of addiction. And we work with universities and health systems because that's oftentimes where the problem starts and where the problem gets lost. And we work with them to help them detect, you know, issues when it comes to alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder. We help them detect that early on through leveraging the technology we've built. And we help those individuals seek care in a more accessible, destigmatized way. And there are so many reasons why this felt like a calling to me. I'll start with one that I think really kind of joins the reason why I'm working on this with my brother. So both of our parents are from Punjab, India, and the Punjabi uh, Sikh community in, you know, America has unfortunately experienced so much of the ramifications of alcohol i think in a lot of immigrant communities you can see this but within hours whether it was through relatives families or things you see on the news alcohol was very pervasive and so my brother and i coming from more of a public health or you know uh, biomedical background you see how alcohol exasperates chronic conditions and individuals health but you also see how alcohol can disrupt communities and My work in student government at that time was really seeing how that was disrupting campus life, campus culture, actual individuals' lives, and it became very clear to me that, you know, we need to address this as a social and health problem, and there's really been no solution that's tried to do both, and so... You know, as you know, healthcare is more of sick care (laughs) in America, and there are so many reasons why somebody doesn't go to the doctors. I mean, even with all of the resources and all of the, you know, help I had, there were so many reasons why I didn't want to go to the doctor. (laughs) I didn't, you know. And so you can only imagine that on top of just a huge fragmented system. And my brother and I, you know, really saw – the gap where technology can come in and streamline the care delivery process for so many individuals who are at need. And for us, it's always been very purpose-driven. And it's something that whether, you know, Whatever the highs and lows of a business in, in starting a company early stage is, we know we can come back to understanding that we're helping people in real lives can be impacted from this. And so that really is what helps ground us during this tumultuous process where I, I think that you know we're still in the becoming work-in-progress stage of what it is to build um, a business.
1: Uh, that's awesome Um, excuse me Um, with ethos what is a night out like with ethos when you know when you say it's a social uh, and medical solution uh, using your technology you know if I'm going to be out having a night you know drinking um, what what does that like look like when I'm using ethos
0: yeah so Essentially, you can log and track your drinks using ethos, and the way we do it embeds into the social environment where you know, you take a photo of your drink, it takes a photo of you back, and that's how we log your standard drink. There's so much education around, you know, there's so much actual education that gets missed around how much is too much that we're trying to embed and automate for the individual so that they don't have to necessarily think about calculating, okay, how much am I actually drinking? We do that for them so that they can stay more present in the moment. And so with that drink log feature, that's really what we're trying to accomplish, as well as, you know, beyond using the drink log feature during an actual drinking session, after a night out, you can use a lot of different prompts, motivational um, reflection tools within the application to figure out, hey, I experienced a hangover, I feel horrible. What should I do? And we kind of coach that person into being like, hey, don't worry about it. Here are next things. Here are some things you can do in the future based off of you know what your alcohol patterns have been in the past, this is how you can improve going forward. And so we're able to really use and take a data-driven approach to mm-hmm. alcohol-related patterns. But in all honesty, you know, even alcohol isn't necessarily the root problem. It's the mental health triggers. And so what we're trying to accomplish in the before and after stages of drinking is how can you raise that awareness for an individual to start to understand what triggers them to pick up a drink, yeah. what triggers them to, you know, take that, you know, go beyond their limits. Yeah. And we try to detect that so that they don't necessarily, you know, they're, they're, they don't ha- necessarily have the capacity maybe in the moment or even after to figure that out. And there's so much data can do to really read between the lines and help that individual digest how something, a, be- a certain behavior is affecting their health.
1: Yeah, that, that's amazing um, work that you guys are doing. What are some of the challenges that you guys have faced, you know, being yeah. young entrepreneurs, entering in such a, like I said, it's it's something that's so socially accepted, but, you know, it can kill communities. It's a lot of, um, you know, for me, like, it's everywhere you turn, you know, um, especially like in, you know, you're watching TV or social media. Someone has a, a bad day, they, they take a drink. Someone celebrates, they have a drink. Yeah. You have social drinkers, and then you like you talked about, it can turn into an addiction. Yeah. And it's a very wide spectrum from social to, you know, stress reliever to addiction. Um, What have some of the challenges that you guys have faced, you know, delivering, you know, your, your, delivering your, your product to your, to your audience?
0: Yeah. So I think, like you just said, even when we have conversations with healthcare administrators who we want to partner with, they're like, okay, this is great, but why alcohol? They don't <laughs> understand how alcohol even is a hu- a big enough problem, right? Everyone knows it can be a problem, but is it a big enough problem that they want to s- take action on? And I think that just speaks volumes to how underestimated it is until it reaches these certain manifestations like, you know, a DUI or, you know, um, an individual getting hurt or somebody having to deal with addiction. We don't realize it and healthcare doesn't realize its cost until it's one of those three things. Yeah. And so for us it's really hard to um we found that it's it's really frustrating to have to, <laughs> you know, make a case for this to healthcare providers who should already proactively be engaging individuals on this type of education mm-hmm. i think also being really young in a industry like healthcare where oftentimes it's a lot of older people oh, no. <laughs> um, you know it's it's hard to be taken seriously i mean we just had a call with a really big health system yesterday and it felt like we just had to almost like Pitch ourselves, which you oftentimes have to do in entrepreneurship, but it felt like we have to kind of talk about our sell, age, where yeah, you know, you to sell yourself
1: and your product, a, right. and
0: it's like, okay. well, that's that shouldn't be relevant, you know, but we have to kind of figure out how to be strategically strategic about our communication, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's been something. I also think that just the route of, you know working partnership partnering with universities and health systems it's very bureaucratic (laughs) and you can think you have a warm lead and then all of a sudden they drop off and so it's just a lot of iterating and I think it goes back to having to one be consistent but two be very disciplined with your belief in the idea and yourself and this is something that my brother has taught taught me so much about because he is, you know, naturally s- a lot more. Um, you know, uh, he he he's, he takes risks a lot more than I do. Or mm-hmm. he he grew up doing that, and I've learned so much from that. But also the way he deals with maybe failure or rejection, I take it really personally <laughs> because I I tie and I'm working on this, but I tie what I'm able to do so close to my identity. And he's mm-hmm. really taught me like, hey. You are an individual, like you're Kavita, and that's great enough. Whatever happens with the business, there's so many factors that go into it. It's not, (laughs) I'm not the only, the one thing that I maybe did or didn't do isn't what is going to make or break ethos, right? It is, you know, an ecosystem of people, of thoughts, of decisions that go into scaling a business. And in the early stages, it really is about building the right consistent protocols or the uh, consistent um actions you're going to do in order to figure it out because there's lots of iterations that happen
1: yeah and um what could you know you talked about scaling up what does scaling up look like for ethos like if you had your perfect world yeah. um what is what does ethos look like in you know two years three years five yeah. five years and now what is um the the awareness around alcohol and education yeah. through ethos uh, look like in yeah. a few years. So
0: we want to be in the hands of every college student across the U.S. We want this to be a part of what you have to do when you go to college so you understand whether it's before you go out, whether it's when when you go out, how much is too much. And we believe our strategy in meeting students where they're at can actually effectively engage Individuals instead of a lot of the current, um, you know, the current practices universities use that students don't even engage with. And when it comes to health systems, we want to be able to reach individuals who are at risk of alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, and reach them with their primary care doctor before um, it gets to that stage of addiction. Because alcohol is a huge risk factor for a variety of different conditions. And again, everything that we're focused on is prevention. We want to see less cases of um, alcohol use disorder, and we want to see more detection of people with it. That's the first barrier, I think, to addressing the addiction crisis, is not enough people are actually screened for Mm -hmm. alcohol use disorder. One, because we don't have those conversations with our friends, so you know, we don't have those conversations with our doctors. So where are we having these conversations? Yeah, you know,
1: yeah, exactly. And how many um, users do you guys currently have or daily users? Are you guys uh, running through your through your (coughs) ecosystem right now?
0: Yeah, so we launched direct to consumer in January. And we ran that through August when we gained over 6000 active daily active users who still use the platform today. Um, You know, we kind of (coughs) From then pivoted more to a model of working with universities and health systems, a B two B SaaS model because we realized, of the average six thousand users, um, or of the six thousand users, the average audit C score, which is the alcohol, which is the alcohol screening protocol, um, the average score from zero to fifteen was six point eight, which means individuals were. Already showing early signs of liver damage, mm. so we knew we needed to bring this to institutions who can enable more care, and that's really where we pivoted. And we hope to, um, you know, gain one a, a larger patient population through those mo- two modalities.
1: And if and if for our audience that's listening, and we wanted to use ethos, you know, to start drinking responsibly because, right, we say drink responsibly, right? We say, yeah, I'm only going to have two or three drinks, and two or three turns into four. But based on how you're feeling, your hydration levels, whether you ate that day, three drinks or four drinks, also depending on the bartender, that all affects the way that you feel. Yeah. And having the technology that, you know, can tell you where you're at, at that point, if you decide to continue, you have, that's a, you know, you're making a choice rather than, but you're making an aware choice. And I yeah. think that's that's what what's very key is giving people the awareness to make the exactly. choice to say... No, I've had I've had enough. So, where could people um, download and 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 get started with using Ethos?
0: Yeah, you can download the consumer version of our application for free on the App Store, Ethos Mindful Drinking. And just to your point, it really is a companion to help you make conscious decisions, regardless of whether you decide to drink. You know, it's not an app that's necessarily just for going sober. It's for people who want to become conscious and have that companion of understanding, hey, how can I pace myself? Hey, you know, how how much is too much for me? All this information that gets lost um, when we're too busy consuming <laughs> alcohol.
1: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate uh, you stopping by the Collab District podcast uh, today. If you could give one um, aspiring Um, story or advice to you know young entrepreneurs out there that are listening to this um, please do so because again there's a lot of people in this community um, that are entrepreneurs that just maybe not feel like they have the resources or just need to hear or relate to a a certain person's story so it can uh, become obtainable to them so is there something aspirational that you could share with us today?
0: Yeah, I think one thing that I have been thinking about for myself when it comes to the importance of having a growth mindset not just for your business but for yourself because they're interrelated is just you know, you have to believe in yourself <laughs> if you I, like if not you then who, right? Yeah. And so no matter all the different support that you can get from friends and family I think working on yourself and being very intentional with what you want to do, I realized that it was a gift to be so driven and it was something I inherited from my parents. It was something that I was so lucky to learn and and have the resources to act on. But if you're not intentional, you can lead a very purposeless life and not know where you are despite working hard, doing the quote-unquote right thing, And so I'm really at a stage where everything I do has a purpose Mm. because I understand how important it is to live life that way. And um, I think that one of the things I had to really unveil was what are my own limitations to a lot of my goals? Like Mm. what self-limitations do I have? And how can I kind of dispel those and really just believe in myself? Because if not, who? And I will say also, I recently watched Beyonce's Renaissance film documentary. Okay. And she said something that was like, I'm not afraid to be seen trying. And I was like, if Beyonce is not afraid to be seen (laughs) trying, who the hell am I (laughs) to be (laughs) afraid? And so I think that's something that's really resonated with me. It's like, I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it my all. And I'm not going to even necessarily care about that outcome I'm so afraid of right now we're not there yet mm-hmm. right I, I'm just gonna keep on going right now
1: and enjoying
0: exactly the, enjoying the, journey, the process the process, yeah
1: well thank you once again for coming by just sharing your journey of resilience and just overcoming and as well as just being uh, young and ambitious and being able to that in and being um, responsible and mature and just living a life of gratitude. Thank you for coming by sharing your story. For our audience, we'll you know check us out on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and all your platforms. This has been another episode of the collab District podcast with Ms Kavita Ra.
0: Thank you.